I was a little boy when uh, the movie Roots came back on a second time. This was a miniseries that debuted in 1977. It was the story of a young man, Kunta Kinte, who was stolen from Africa and forced into slavery in the Deep South. It was a horrific imagery for me as a little boy, finally getting to understand a little bit more in pictures and imagery the plight of the Middle Passage, the plight of having no freedoms or rights, the plight of having your family torn apart. Over the course of several centuries, the transatlantic slave trade saw more than 12 million people, more than 12 million people stolen from their homelands, brought to the Americas, and forced to work as property. They were treated with no protection. They had no appeals if something unjust was happening to them. Their families were constantly torn apart. The transatlantic, transatlantic slave trade was perhaps one of the greatest evils in the history of humanity, and our country and its founding were built on it. Slavery, of course, didn't end with the Emancipation Proclamation or the end of the Civil War. Unfortunately, today it continues. Today, modern-day slavery suggests that there are tens of millions, possibly more than 40 million people enslaved today three to four times what was brought across during those centuries of horror. Slavery today looks somewhat different, but not altogether different than it did in the chattel slavery of the Deep South in America. Today you can be under the guise of bonded laborers. A bonded laborer is somebody who gets in debt and they go to work for somebody, but in places where rule of law do not exist, they are functionally slaves. The stories told on the IJM website or in the book The Locust Effect by Gary Haugen, the founder of IJM, talk about how kids and adults, families are stolen, essentially, taken into slave labor. One story is that of a boy named Foley. We're going to see a little bit about him later on. Foley was being raised by his grandparents, but his grandfather was hit by a car and was not unable to work, so they got work for Foley, the young boy. But it wasn't work. He was taken to an island in the middle of Lake Volta, the largest lake in Ghana, and the next day brought out to the middle of the lake and with the other boys shoved into the water. He could not swim. For 16 hours a day, 16 hours a day, he works. Swimming down and undoing the nets, they get caught up in the thicket below, beaten if he doesn't do the job. If he is sick, he works. And there's no way out, no one to appeal for him. This is not a job, this is slavery. You go across to India and you will find whole families. They begin in what is called like a bonded labor situation. They owe a little bit of money so they go and work for a brick kiln under the guise of, hey, we'll give you $50 advance so you can pay your other bills. But once they're inside of the brick kiln, they have no freedoms. They're not allowed out, they're not allowed a day off. If they or their children are sick, they are beaten. The kiln owners, as IJM tells the stories, the kiln owners employ the local police and local gangs. The local gangs come in and beat the people in the slave labor. And if they try to run away or appeal, they are often brought and in front of everyone beaten to death. There's no way out. Sometimes even when they do get out, 
the rule of law does not exist. And for some reason, every case seems to fall apart. Bonded labor. And of course, the more uh, visible one to many of us today is being trafficked into the, into the sexual trade. Sexual violence is an $18 billion a year trade globally. Maya was a young woman in India who, as she was traveling to visit her brother, ended up walking home with an older couple from her village. She was going to accompany them, as kind of you're supposed to do out of respect. They were going on a journey, and she was going with them a little bit to care for them as they went. But they went much further than she expected. When they did sit down for food, they, she got some food and some tea. She woke up, having been drugged, by the elder couple in her village in a hotel, but it wasn't a hotel. It was a room with no windows. She was in a brothel, and she had no way out. The brothel owner, a violent and brutal man, brought a another young woman in who was serving as a prostitute in his slave and sex trafficking industry. He got himself drunk, and then he beat the girl to death in front of Maya. It's her first 24 hours when she thought she was just helping this elder couple on their way. She learned later on that this girl tried to escape. Maya was then brutally raped, and from that day on was sold day and night. Three, five, ten clients a day, every day. Billions of people, billions of people, it's a huge number, you can't really get your head around it, live outside of the rule of law. That means even when laws exist that say these sorts of things are illegal, the laws are not enforced. And the powerful, even at the local level powerful, live with impunity. They get away with things. Violence is particularly a problem for the poor because they do not have a voice. You know some of the statistics, and they kind of overwhelm our brains a little bit, but here they are, right? Two-thirds of the world, four billion people, live on less than $10 a day. That's less than $4,000 a year. Two-thirds of the world live on less than $10 a day. Poverty is a chronic lack of protection, okay? So poverty, as a way of defining it, is a, is a chronic lack of protection against hunger or disease or the elements, you don't have proper housing, or violence. The International Justice Mission was founded to combat that violence against the poorest of the poor. Gary Haugen, the founder, in his book, The Locust Effect, writes, you are probably not regular be regularly being threatened with being enslaved, imprisoned, beaten, raped, or robbed. But if you were among the world's poorest billions, you would be. Violence with impunity and violence against the poor is even worse for women. 33% of women globally, one in three women globally, during their lifetime will have been beaten, abused, assaulted, or raped. That includes America, Europe, one in three women. And if you go to the developing, the poor world, it's far worse. 48% of women in Uganda can expect this in their lifetime. 62%, nearly two-thirds of the women in Peru. 
will at some point in their life be abused, beaten, assaulted, or raped, or that will be their life story. It becomes normal in some parts of the world. And even when the laws are there, they're overlooked, which means you can get away with stuff. To put it on a much, um, <laughs> much smaller scale, think about the way you approach um, the speed limit, right? The speed limit says 35, which means you're good how many miles per hour over? Eight, right? Eight, you're fine. Nine, you're mine. That's the whole phrase. Which generally means all of us drive about five miles per hour over the speed limit. But that's actually against the law. But you know no one's going to pull you over for going three or four over. In the developing world, the powerful, and the powerful can be very small power, know that they're just going three or four over when they beat people, women, when they rape them, when they traffic them. Yeah, it's against the law, but no one's pulling anyone over. Amnesty International, in their article Impunity from 2004, writes, Impunity for violence against women contributes to a climate where such acts are seen as normal and acceptable rather than criminal, where women do not seek justice because they know they will not gain it. Many of you have heard of the phrase, the girl effect. The girl effect is this. The girl effect is the disproportionately positive effect on a society when girls are educated. The girl effect is the disproportionately positive effect on a family, on a community, on a village, on an entire society when girls are educated. But in societies where there is violence against girls with impunity, guess what? You can build the greatest school for girls and they will not go. Because along the way or in the school, they will face assault or rape and abuse. So unless you can protect them getting there and while they're there, building the schools is a lost cause. Injustice is the term that we're talking about. And injustice is seen globally in poverty circles. It's seen in trafficking circles. It's seen in racial inequality. We see this in our country today still. There is an ongoing injustice of race and systemic poverty that has continued for over 100 years. Yes, slavery was abolished 150 years ago, but there were generations of inequality for the children of those slaves because of prejudice and hatred and intimidation and violence with impunity across much of America for decades. Systemic poverty developed. Even to this day, there are different effects and rules in place. How many of you ever saw the short video called Get Home Safely? 10 Rules for Survival if you're stopped by the police. Get Home Safely, 10 Rules for Survival if you were stopped by the police. You haven't seen that one? If you were in a black church, you would have seen it. About two or three years ago, it was being shown in nearly every black church. Why? Because parents were trying to train their kids, 8, 9, 10, 15, 16, what to do if the police stopped them. Ten things, because the goal was get home safely. Get home safely. I'm a white dad, and my kids look white. And I don't have to worry about showing them that video. But if they were black, 
injustice. Injustice is seen in the inequality of the world in which we live, and we see it in our own country. Systemic issues lead to the sort of poverty that leads to ongoing other issues. It would not be hard to find a child growing up in some of the poorest communities in America being functionally illiterate by the time they were teenagers. The answer to teenage illiteracy because of the bad schools and the bad systems in place and the broken homes and everything, uh, a liberal answer is it's unjust social structures that are behind the issue. The conservative answer is no, it's the breakdown of the family. No one says this about the functionally illiterate teenager who grows up in poverty. It's the seven-year-old's fault. That seven-year-old kid should have advocated with his parents to get moved to a better school system. Now that he's 17, it's too late, but when he was younger, he should have known better. He should have known he didn't want to grow up in that school. He should have yelled at his parents when he was four for them not reading to him. It's his fault, right? course not. But the reality is a child born in my family is going to be two times, five times, ten times, a hundred times more likely to grow up with economic and social well-being. My kids did not choose to be born. You did not choose to be born into the family in which you were born, the place in which you were born. There is enormous inequality in the distribution of resources and opportunities in this world. That is another definition of injustice. The enormous inequality in the distribution of resources and opportunities. If you are particularly poor, you will live hungry and sick. The most vulnerable will live trapped in relationships of physical or sexual abuse. That can happen in the US and it certainly happens globally. And there are millions who live enslaved by the violent and the evil, the powerful who operate with impunity. And the laws and systems meant to support and help the broken are ignored. This is why there is a call from the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible identifies with four types of people, the fatherless, the widow, the sojourner, and the poor. You go read through the Old Testament and time and again, God is identifying with the fatherless, the widow, the sojourner, basically a foreigner, an immigrant, and the poor. This is the Old Testament list of the most vulnerable and powerless people in the ancient Near Eastern world. The reason why God identifies these is because it's a counter to the natural tendencies of people in that day and age. In 1000 BC, in the Middle East, it was the powerful patriarchs in clan-based societies. Power and blood were what were valued. Kings, kings were in positions of high power and status, right? And it was believed in nearly every culture that if you were a king, it was because the gods had anointed you or appointed you, and therefore the gods were with you. And so if you wanted to be blessed by the gods, you had to get close to the kings. In fact, in, in Egypt and in Rome, the king was a god, right? So power was the place where God was blessing things. On top of that, nearly every religious system, in fact, every religious system was merit-based. 
much like many religious systems still today. And the result was this idea that if something is going well in your life, it's because God is blessing you. And God blesses the faithful and good. So if you're poor, it's because of something you did. We shouldn't help those people. God's already cursed them. It's why in John chapter 9, the people ask, was this, born, this man born blind because of his sin or his parents? It's a false understanding of the connection between the problems and sins and brokenness in our lives and the goodness and faithfulness of our lives. Israel was called to be different. They were called to care for and protect the poor and the helpless and the vulnerable. And in a society and in a world in which clan and tribe were everything, blood relations were everything, most societies would have cared for their own. There was a sense of like care for your own widows, care for your own orphans, but you would never care for foreigners, sojourners. People that were outside of your blood relatives or your tribe had no grounds for protection. You could do with them whatever you wanted functionally. But Israel was called to care for all the poor and powerless, even the foreigner. That was radical. The Old Testament called for radical provision for the poor and the powerless, the fatherless, the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, and the poor. We see this in the Old Testament laws of generosity and inclusion. Hospitality was pretty common in that Middle Eastern culture, still is today. But Israel was called to extend hospitality to the foreigner, even including them in your religious festivals. And if you had a family member who became a widow or an orphan, you were to adopt or become the kinsman redeemer. You had obligations of bringing the weak into your family and your community. And on top of that, Israel was called to the sort of economic generosity that no other culture was. They were told when you go harvest your fields or harvest your grapes, don't go back over the field a second time. Leave whatever is left for the poor to come, for the foreigner, for the orphan, for the widow. Leave the corners of your fields for the poor, the orphan, the widow. That was costly. That was basically saying, hey, take some of your money. You made $100,000 last year. Leave $10,000 for the poor. And on top of that, they were called to have a Sabbath, right? The Sabbath was not just an opportunity to worship God. It was a calling to cease from economic striving and it applied not only to you, but to your animals and to any servants working, to any foreigners who worked for you. Everyone was given a day of rest. Rome did not do that. No culture did that. Israel did that. That day of rest was a day of generosity for the poor. A day of saying, I am not la laboring just for money. Nor are you if you work for me. On top of generosity and inclusion, God in the Old Testament calls for radical justice. In Deuteronomy, in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, we read, Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the cause of the widow. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness. Deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the resident alien even though you could, do not do it. Or the fatherless, or the widow. Why? Because Yahweh, the God of Israel, is father to the fatherless. It's one of the common ways that the God of the Bible identifies himself. 
the father of orphans. Father of fatherless, protector of widows, is God in heaven, says Psalm 68. In Deuteronomy 10, the very beginning of the covenantal law for Israel, the Lord executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. If you were to look across the hundreds of Old Testament passages that cite this, it sums up what one Jesuit priest in the 60s called God's preferential option for the poor. God's preferential option for the poor. In a sense, given a choice between the poor and the rich, God's not going to choose us. In a brutal and power-oriented world where the poor were especially vulnerable, the God of the Bible challenged every cultural assumption and norm and called his people to radically generous justice. Which is why in Isaiah 58, when the people come to him asking why he isn't answering their prayers, his answer is very obvious or should have been. In Isaiah 58, God is citing the people of Israel saying, you guys are coming to me saying, hey, we have fasted. Why have you not seen our fast? Why haven't you answered our prayer when we have done all of our religious duty? They're saying, well, look, we've been very religious. All these things you tell us to do, show up at the Sabbath, come to church on Sunday, get involved in a small group. We've done all these things. Answer our prayers, God. Where are you? And God's answer to them is, you do religious duty to get stuff from me. You are not seeking me. You don't want to know me. If you knew me, if you were actually seeking me, you would know my heart. And then you would not ignore the poor or oppress the weak. This is the fast I choose, says the Lord in verses 6 and 7. It is to loose the bonds of the oppressed, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke. Verse 7, share your bread with the hungry. Invite the homeless poor into your house, and when you see somebody naked, you clothe them. That phrase, break every yoke, at the end of verse 6, is, uh, is an emphatic imperative. Basically, God goes along saying, hey, loose the bonds, undo the straps, let the oppressed go free, and then he shouts, break every yoke. You want to know what I want? I want you to break every yoke. Now, a yoke was this bar that went across the shoulders of an ox so that it was connected to another ox, and they could plow a field or pull a cart. That yoke to which they were strapped allowed the person that was doing the plowing to control them. The ox was not free. The ox was in being forced into labor, if you would. But notice what God does not say. God doesn't say, find the ox and set him free from the yoke. Instead, he says, find the yoke and break it so no ox's oxen can be connected ever again. Ensure that that yoke cannot be used on anyone ever again. In other words, yes, it's good to set somebody free. It's even better to get at the root issue so that all can be free. 
That's why we do partner with IJM, with the International Justice Mission, because a lot of their vision and goal is not just to set the one free, but to ensure that that trafficker can never do it again. To ensure that people in that police precinct will be put behind bars if they break the laws. To make sure that the systems that are in place are able to uphold the rule of law and guarantee the freedoms that all people should have. It's why they focus on things like police and political corruption and training of the police, trying to raise up more judges, train prosecutors and medical examiners, because there is an absolute shortage in much of the developing world. In the country of Malawi, there are 10 prosecutors for 15 million people. That is the equivalent of one prosecutor to prosecute all crimes in Alexandria, Arlington, and Fairfax combined. One person who can prosecute for all of Fairfax, Arlington, and Alexandria. In Nairobi, a city of three million in Kenya, where there are approximately 150,000 rapes every year, there is one certified medical examiner. If you are raped, you must go to this certified medical examiner and get your paper signed off, or you have no case. Break every yoke. The Lord says, I don't want your fat, I want you to feed. Do you deny yourself food and say, God, bless me and answer my prayers? And God says, people are hungry, feed them, answer their prayers. Give yourself, your time, your money, your connections, your voice, your involvement to the poor. Verse 7 has a lot of you statements. I hate it when God does this. Break your bread, give your bread to the poor, open your home to the homeless. You yourself should see the naked and clothe them. Do not turn yourself away from them as if it's not really happening. Justice will cost you and me. We will lose some of our bread and our time and our freedoms as we sacrifice them for the good of others. An Old Testament professor named Bruce Waltke suggested that the difference between the righteous and the wicked, which is a common comparison in the Old Testament, is the righteous person disadvantages himself for the sake of the community. The righteous person disadvantages himself for the sake of the community. The wicked sees his resources as belonging to himself. And then Jesus comes along in Matthew 25 with my least favorite parable about the sheep and the goats. And he lays down the accusations against the goats, those who are going into damnation. And they say, Lord, Lord, when did we see you hungry and not feed you thirsty and stranger and naked and sick and in prison and not minister to you? When, when did this happen? I don't remember seeing you, Jesus. I would surely recognize that face. I mean, the beard, I've seen it in all the movies. When you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it unto me. In other words, it's not enough to just avoid evil. The God of the Bible calls us to do good. 
The sixth commandment, I think, is the sixth, could be the seventh or the fifth, but says do not commit adultery, right? What Jesus is saying is it's not enough to say, I have not had sex with a woman who is not my wife. I'm good. To fulfill even that commandment is to be able to say, I protect all women. I uphold the dignity and value the worth of every woman. I care for, respect, and develop friendships with women like they are my sisters or my daughters or my aunts. It is not just to avoid evil. It's to do good. God is saying, if your devotional life and your worship life and your small groups and your reading theology brings you joy, great. That's good. But if that's all it does, it's not true worship and devotion. If your faith does not drive you out in consistent concern for your brothers and sisters, for your neighbors, as well as for the poor and the oppressed and the outsider and the stranger and the immigrant and the abused and the hopeless and the enslaved, if it does not constantly push you out of yourself, it's not God you are seeking in your worship and devotion. It's you that you're seeking, your own good. Okay, does anyone feel guilty? Awesome. <laughs> Unfortunately, guilt, um, like popular social conscience, will motivate you for a while until it doesn't. Once it's out of your thoughts, once it's out of the Twitter feed, it's gone. But the gospel can motivate you at a much deeper core level. If you are saved by grace, you cannot be superior to anyone, nor can you extend care only to the deserving poor, because nobody is deserving and everyone is equal. If you're fully loved, fully loved by God, not needing to steal love, protect yourself, guard it, then you can pour yourself out in generosity and love and not worry about what you're not getting in return. To the extent that you and I realize the mercy that we were given in Christ instead of the justice we deserved, to that extent, we will relentlessly be able to fight for justice in our neighborhoods and around the globe. The gospel is the good news of God identifying with the poor. What is the incarnation? What is Christmas but God entering poverty and saying, I am with you in Jesus' life? He doesn't just go around, you know, speaking poems. Jesus goes around doing justice, loosing the demon-possessed, healing the sick, restoring the social outcasts, giving dignity to women and sinners. And throughout Jesus' life, it is the poor and the sick and the least who sought him out and the most powerful who could not understand him and rejected him. And then think about the gross injustice of his death. There's a trial for Jesus, right? But there's no evidence. There's no defense attorney. He's beaten, he's tortured, and he's unjustly condemned with no one to stand up for him. Black theologians for decades have, I, have noticed this. Jesus didn't just die for us. He did. He didn't just die for us. 
he also identifies with us in our injustices through his death. As several of them have pointed out, Jesus' trial and crucifixion was a lynching. He experienced gross injustice so that we can receive grace and mercy and not the justice we deserve. Jesus came to bring freedom and justice and mercy and joy to the poor and the enslaved and the suffering and the hopeless. He offers himself to all in need. He offers himself to us. And he calls us to go and do the same. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, on the cross, you experienced gross injustice so that we who deserve death might be set free. May the power of that death and resurrection, the amazing depth of your love for us, give us the power to see others through your eyes, to pour out ourselves for you and for them, and to be renewed day by day in our work to carry out your purposes for justice in this world. Amen.